Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we're continuing our ongoing series on Who Am I by focusing on a subset of the depressed mood states that we covered in an earlier episode in this series, bipolar disorder, formerly known as manic depressive. As with all the episodes in this series, please remember that bipolar disorder is best diagnosed by a licensed mental health professional. It can be extremely helpful to have the information required to understand our individual tendencies or the tendencies of the people around us. That's one of our big goals with this series. And practical tools to manage those tendencies as best as we can. But formal diagnosis should always be left to a professional. Overdiagnosing our friends and family can be an extremely slippery slope and even turn into a tool for us to avoid our own issues by placing the blame on other people. To help us dig through these big topics, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So how are you doing? I'm good. I'm looking forward to this topic. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really interesting one. Before we get going with the episode today, I actually just wanted to take a moment to ask for a little favor from our listeners. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it. If you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even, hey, leave a rating, a positive review, something like that, it really does help us out. To get into our material for today's podcast, what distinguishes bipolar disorder from normal old garden variety clinical depression? I think it's summarized in the old school uh, description of it as manic depression. Hmm. So it requires a manic episode. And a manic episode, which we'll talk about, reminds me, here's a story, of when I first went fishing with my grandfather off of Long Beach in Los Angeles Harbor. And I asked my grandfather, I was maybe nine or eight at the time, how will I know that I've hooked a fish rather than some old boot or seaweed or something like that? Mm. And he smiled knowingly at me and said, Rick, trust me, you'll know it when you feel it. And Having a live fish on the end of your line, whatever the ethics of that might be, feels totally different from snagging a kind of inanimate boot or chunk of seaweed. In much the same way, a genuine manic episode is not a garden variety feeling of elation about something really neat that has happened for you or getting intense about something or revved up or overconfident in any kind of a normal way. A truly manic episode feels really weird. Mm. It makes the hair stand up in the back of your neck. You feel like, whoa, this is different. I'm no longer in Kansas anymore. Whether you're experiencing yourself, although often when people are experiencing it, they don't really realize they're in the middle of a manic episode. They just feel great and don't understand why the people around them are such holes, right? (laughs) (laughs) But on the other hand, when your friend is suddenly calling you up at three in the morning to tell you their brilliant idea for world peace and they're not high as a kite, they're just in their thing. Or in my case, perhaps... Uh, Someone you know is telling you that a family member has just bought $752 worth of cheese at at Trader Joe's. Or you hear that your kid who's gone off to college has been picked up by the campus police wandering the campus with no clothes on, telling everyone that he is a combination of Jesus Christ and Napoleon. Then you start to think, rut row, 
this is something of a real deal. So this is the fundamental characteristic of genuine bipolar disorder, either full-on flagrant manic episodes, and we'll describe what those are, or milder versions of manic episodes that don't fit the full criteria for a manic episode, and yet clearly something is really different, along with, in all cases, a presumption as well of major depressive episodes. The idea being that in a unipolar depression, you go down, but you never really get past you zero. You stay down, basically. Yeah, you, yeah. Come, you, you move from zero to minus 10. Mm-hmm. The idea of bipolar disorder is you can go up to plus seven on elation and grandiosity, intensity, a feeling of being pressured, being just lit up. You can go up to plus seven or 10, but you always come crashing down mm. well below the waterline. That's the basic idea, which is really kind of interesting. That's a great way to put it. To ask a quick question here, you mentioned a second ago that it used to be known as manic depressive and since has been changed over to bipolar. Is there a reason for that change in language? I think it's just general movement to move away from terminology that seems fuzzy and Mm. maybe pathologizing. Mm. Mania, manic is a slippery slope to mania. Mania really doesn't sound very good. (laughs) And it also kind of implies a psychotic element to it. Mm. Detail. There's a distinction between a manic episode without psychotic features and manic episodes with psychotic features. And there's a fair number of psychotic episodes that have a manic turbocharger at at their core. Yeah, when you were describing the different kinds or varieties of a of a severe manic episode earlier, ranging from buying way too much cheese at Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or whatever it was, product placement insert here, to believing that you're some ecstatic figure wandering around campus, they seem to have a a pretty significant distinguishment between them. Thinking that your Napoleon is genuinely delusional. Yeah. Thinking that it's a good idea to stock up on $750 worth of cheese. This was 10, 15 years ago, by the way, uh, it's not really psychotic, but it's not normal. See, that's kind of the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll maybe get into psychosis in a different episode. It, it has a quality of being clearly delusional and or with really bizarre ideas, as well as with, uh, in a genuine psychotic episode, there can be other things like, you know, hallucinations of various kinds, not necessarily the case for a full manic episode. That's great. So to kind of get a little bit more specific here, I'm going to kind of move over to the diagnostic criteria for what defines a manic episode, more technically speaking, maybe. So some possibilities here are feeling just overly happy, excited, or confident. That's maybe a kind of the low end of what we're talking about as a manic episode. If I could just interrupt you there, it's not like wow, your boss just told you you were great, you're going to get a promotion, or you asked someone to marry you, and they're just delighted to do that. This is the kind of thing where you roll out of bed, you you know, meet your partner at breakfast, and you can't stop talking about how happy you are. And the euphoria seems to go way beyond you just had a good meditation this morning <laughs> or it was so much fun to sing in the shower. There's something really different here. Okay, keep on going. Yeah, absolutely. So some other things that might be kind of included in that stew are feeling extremely irritable, 
aggressive or wired. And to me, this is really one of the kind of distinguishing features of a even a hypomanic episode, which we'll talk about a little bit later, a kind of more mild form of a manic episode is this this swing and often this very quick trigger between feeling really up and happy and feeling really angry and irritable or bothered by something going on. Often even botherment at the fact that people aren't responding positively to your extreme happiness. And that swing is really kind of a classic identifier. So some other things that might be included in this thick stew are having uncontrollable racing thoughts or speech, having your attention easily drawn or being easily distracted to things that are, relatively speaking, unimportant. Another one, maybe a version of what you were referring to earlier with that kind of more ecstatic framing, was thinking of yourself as being extremely overly important, gifted, or special. Again, this isn't just kind of thinking, wow, I'm a nice guy. This is really thinking, wow, I am Jesus Christ or whatever it might be. Yeah, or or a version of that is basically sitting down at your desk and writing for six hours in a row because you're convinced that the manifesto you're developing is exactly what the UN Secretary General needs to hear today. And when you're done, you're going to be firing it off to that person. And you don't <laughs> want to be interrupted and quit telling me to come for dinner. I'm 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 I've got it. I've got it. I've got it here. I'm going to send it to the Secretary General. Yeah, absolutely. And even that energy behind it is definitely one of the distinguishing features of a true manic episode. So another one is engaging in risky behavior or taking more risks than you ordinarily would. And finally, here's one that in my case, when I look around myself and I see one or two people in my world who have what I would call maybe 10% bipolar disorder, this is one that really stands out to me. Making poor judgments around or having excessive involvement with pleasurable activities that have a high potential for painful consequences, such as with money, relationships, or substance use. And again, big identifying factor of somebody who might have full-on bipolar, ranging to a more mild form of it, which again, we'll get into in a little bit. One thing I want to distinguish here is, first of all, normal irritability based on circumstances or maybe age and stage, like adolescence, from a genuine manic episode. Mm. So just because somebody has one or two or maybe even three of the kind of features we talked about doesn't necessarily constitute a real manic episode. Also, I think it's important, as you said at the very beginning, to recognize diagnosis du jour. I've kind of been in this field long enough that I've seen the ebbs and flows of certain fashionable diagnoses. Maybe 10 years ago, everybody was bipolar. Mm. My boyfriend's bipolar. Oh, mm-hmm. that explains things. Uh, that's why he left me. Well, maybe he left you because he's a jerk. Or maybe he left you because you were a jerk. That doesn't necessarily make him bipolar, though he might be. These days, I see a lot of diagnosis de jour in the autism spectrum, in which, oh, you know, my partner's got Asperger's. That's why. He's not interested in me. Well, maybe he's not interested in you for other reasons, not just having a genuine autism spectrum disorder. So another piece of it here that I want to speak to is this notion of grandiosity. And I want to distinguish between the grandiosity of narcissism from a genuine manic episode. So as we've been exploring in different podcast episodes, narcissism 
particularly in the full form, with a sense of entitlement and specialness, a lot lives as a sort of defense against terrible feelings of worthlessness that are warded off, served by the function of the narcissistic personality structure. That's a kind of exoskeleton like wrapped around a crab that enables the person to function. And yet if you crack through that exoskeleton, you land in a whole bunch of shame and feeling of worthlessness. Mm. A person who is manic and developing uh, grandiosity may not have any history really of being narcissistic. And yet there's a kind of engine deep in the core of them That's not about serving the psychological function of warding off old feelings of shame and inadequacy, but it exists in its own right, which then speaks to something really important about both major depression and bipolar disorder in that these are mood disorders. There's an underlying notion in the diagnosis of these that they are a major form of emotion dysregulation at the heart of it all grounded in deep and frankly ancient subcortical emotional circuits in the brain and other elements of the limbic system that involve more recent neocortical areas have really gone awry. So that's a key point there. The other thing I want to distinguish between a manic episode is Jung's really lovely notion of inflation. Inflation is a really cool thing. And he points out that very often after people have breakthroughs of different kinds, psychologically, there can be a sense of inflation, of being somehow larger than life. Not all the rules apply to you. And what's really tricky about inflation is that it often comes on the heels of a personal growth breakthrough. Mm. And it can Mm -hmm. feel so real. I'll spare you some of the embarrassing details, but I had one of those episodes for myself. and. While I was in it, it all just felt so okay. And yet, to my horror, when I kind of came down from that brief high, I realized, whoa, you know, I had really not taken other people into account as fully as I really should have. And so I want to kind of separate that notion of inflation. It, it, it shares some of the grandiosity elements of manic depression, as well as this typically a mood elevation of elation, but just doesn't have that overwhelming sense of drivenness that you can't turn off. Those are really great distinctions that you're drawing here. To draw some additional distinctions, it might be helpful to know that there are various kinds of bipolar disorder. And I was wondering if you could get into some of the differences between them. Oh, okay, great. I think as you know, Forrest, basically there's type one and type two. So technically, Type 1 bipolar disorder is major depression defined as a major depressive episode lasting two weeks or longer. So it's the fully real deal, often with a history of multiple episodes, sometimes layered on top of an underlying what's called dysthymic disorder or background feeling of worthlessness and sadness. This seems way out of proportion to situational factors uh, like bereavement over a loss or or mourning and or I want to say not just way out of proportion to, but distinct from normal range responses to um, environmental events. So there are major depressive episodes along with full manic episodes. That's type one bipolar disorder. Type two bipolar disorder is major depression with hypo 
manic episodes. Hypo sounds like hyper. It's actually counterintuitive. It means less than the normal amount. So a hypomanic episode, instead of having, say, six or seven or more of the criteria for a full manic episode, might have three or four. Or there might be multiple criteria met, but not with that kind of intensity that you see in a full manic episode, which when you see it, you think to yourself, whoa, this person's kind of crazy right now. Hypomanic, it's, it's more dialed down. So that's type two of bipolar disorder. Then there's what's called cyclothymic disorder, which is essentially hypomanic episodes combined with dysthymic disorder or depressive episodes that don't fit the full criteria package for major depression and yet are significant in this person's life. Then last, there's that wonderful catch-all category, bipolar disorder not otherwise specified. And as a detail, I'll mention that somebody told me quite a while ago that one of the most common psychotherapeutic diagnoses that are used to justify insurance treatment is adjustment disorder, not otherwise specified, Mm. NOS. In other words, there's a lot of significant, meaningful, genuine psychopathology that is defined as creating Distress and dysfunction that's significant in the life of a person, uh, often related to significant impacts on others. So a lot of the truth of psychopathology doesn't fit these neat categories. We do the best we can. If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, eats like a duck, and flies like a duck, it's probably a duck. But sometimes there's a fair amount of duckness that just doesn't fit the total picture. So you're allowed to have this NOS category, not otherwise specified. So inherent in what you're saying here with a a type 1 and a type 2 and a cyclothymic and a not otherwise specified and kind of all of these other categories and caveats that we've given here of various kinds, there's an implication that bipolar, as with many of the other things we've talked about, is a bit of a spectrum where there are more extreme and less extreme cases. And The language that we've kind of created in this series of podcast episodes to talk about this is the idea of 10% or 1% or 30% of something. So there may be people in your life, or it may be, hey, you, who do not fit the full spectrum diagnostic criteria for bipolar. But there are a lot of characteristics here that may or may not be ringing true for you right now. And so it's helpful to understand that there are packages here that aren't fully manic or aren't fully psychotic or aren't fully depressed for a period of two weeks or whatever it might be. And I think that it's helpful to think in that way because, at least for me, it helps to take some of the pathology out of it. One of at least my real underlying goals with doing this series of episodes has been to depathologize and kind of demystify many of these things that we've been talking about. To speak to something that you were giving a little bit of information on earlier, one of the reasons, in my opinion, that we moved from a labeling of manic depressive to bipolar is because there was a gendered element in the framing of manic, at least at the time. Women were massively disproportionately diagnosed with a manic depressive episode, particularly the idea of mania was really focused on what a largely male establishment was seeing as unreasonable uh, extremity of emotion in their female clients. 
So it's just kind of good to carry that into the conversation a little bit here, that it's very, very easy to start to hear a lot of the terminology that we're using here and view all of this as very pathologized, you know, very serious, very negative. And so for me, it's just kind of helpful to move things in a framing of, hey, if you add up 5% bipolar with 5% narcissism, with 5% of all the other things that we've been talking about on the course of this, uh, this series of podcast episodes, man, you're moving probably into about 70 or 80% of the adult population, right? It's a big chunk of people who are maybe somewhere a little bit mildly on the spectrum, so to speak, to steal the language of one of these things. And to me, that's not trying to like pathologize the world. That's actually very humanizing. And it's very much a a testament to the fact that we all got a little bit of something. And I think that that just sort of pulls us more into relationship with other people. I think that's so beautifully said, Forrest. And if I could just drop in two points here. One is that these various currents inside us, as you know, there's this really powerful metaphor my, I keep returning to again and again, eddies in the stream. So we are all a stream in which there are many eddies, many currents. And in some cases, there are people who have one of their eddies being a significant issue with personality, such as narcissism or sociopathy. And in such a person can also be other things, such as an addiction to gambling, which is then turbocharged with a hypomanic presentation in which periodically this person just gets lit up with with an issue of mood and suddenly is burning through their whole life savings. Mm -hmm. These different things can entwine with each other and feed each other. There's a term called dual diagnosis in which kind of classically and narrowly, there's a drug addiction issue or substance abuse and dependence problem along with a psychiatric issue, dual diagnosis, point one. Point two, a key distinguisher between what could be called more of a personality issue and a mood disorder is summarized in the root of the word for emotion, which is motion. For example, in major depression, the motion of the mood is downward, just a devastating slump. I think of it like you're trying to get above water in the ocean and you swim desperately for the surface and maybe someone gives you a hand and pulls you up and out but very quickly, like a ballast or dead weight strapped to your legs, just drags you back down again. Flip the other way, in a manic episode or a hypomanic episode, the motion, the propulsion is upward, as if you're strapped to a jet pack and you try to calm down. Maybe you try to be appropriate. Maybe other people around you tell you to take a chill pill. Maybe you can manage very, very briefly, you know, to act appropriately, but that jetpack is still strapped to you and sending you upward. So that's the sense of the mood dysregulation here, including the ways in which it's understood that it is literally a neurological dysregulation deep in the bowels of the brain. I think that's some great additional information. And you've already kind of begun to do this when you're talking about the motion of this episode, this kind of up and down movement. And you gave some maybe extreme versions of what bipolar might look like in kind of everyday terms, maybe with somebody who's more 
at the cyclothymic or mm-hmm. hypomanic level of bipolar. What does it really look like, practically speaking, maybe even drawing upon your clinical experience? Yeah, let's say you live with someone and you maybe have a history of just kind of watching them go up and down. They have their highs, but their highs are always followed by their lows. And their highs have a certain characteristic quality to them. They last a few days, maybe a couple dozen hours. During the highs, things seem really much more possible than it seems like they really are. They tend to discount risks, including reasonable cautions you present to them. Their mood is elevated while also being irritable and quite quickly frustrated at any sort of obstruction. They tend to get snappish, they're impulsive. And you look at them and you have a sense that this person you love is kind of strapped to something, strapped to an engine, strapped to a jetpack that's carrying them away. And they don't really have control over what's really happening. It's important to distinguish hypomania or a genuine manic episode from people who are just naturally passionate about stuff or enthusiastic, or maybe they've had it up to here. Maybe they're fiery. Maybe they've had it with social injustice and they're going to do something about it. And they dig deep and work 60, 80, 100 hours a week for a few months on some good cause, maybe politically oriented. That's really different from something that a person can't really regulate. That's the idea. If you're depressed, you can't make yourself not be depressed. If you're passionate about something and you start to realize that your roommates or the people at the dinner party, you know, they've heard it already and they're not particularly interested in you ranting yet again, you can buckle up. <laughs> you can button it up and dial it back. You're, if, if you're caught in major depression, you can't not be depressed. If you're caught in a manic episode, you can't not be manic. And so that's a key distinction too. Great distinctions. And I just want to pull out something that you mentioned for a second there, which is the idea that these periods of up and down might be longer or might be shorter. There are people who go through a two-week period of depression followed by a two-week period of hypomania. That'd be a little unusual to be hypomanic for that extended period of time, but hey, it happens. At the same time, there are people who go through a two-hour period of depression followed by a two-hour period of hypomania. Also probably a little bit on the unusual side, but hardly out of the question. And part of the diagnostic challenge for people around figuring out what's depression, what's bipolar, what's narcissism, what's this or that, is how in bipolar, these periods can be a very varying lengths. And that can make it challenging sometimes to determine whether or not somebody actually has a mood regulation issue around particularly depression. Because if they feel amazing half of the time, can that person really be depressed? And part of that is for the person who's experiencing that, it's equally challenging. If I'm down all the time, and I have a friend who comes to me and says, hey, Forrest, it seems like you're pretty depressed these days. I'm probably going to be kind of like, yeah, sounds about right to me. But if I'm down sometimes, but I'm really happy sometimes, and there are other times where I basically feel kind of okay, and there are some times when I'm really motivated, and there are some times when I'm really not, and somebody comes to me and says, Forrest, I think you're depressed. I'm going to say you're kind of crazy. 
Like that's not what my experience is. So it's very, very challenging for me to relate that kind of a diagnosis personally. And that's part of what makes bipolar really challenging, both for the person experiencing it and for the people around them, because interventions are kind of hard to get into if the person doesn't really feel like there needs to be an intervention. That's really well said, Forrest. Like I keep telling you, you ought to go get your PhD in any way. This has been an ongoing series of episodes largely focused I want a new podcast oh about God. your career searches. Oh, I know, right? See, that's actually the true underlying theory of the case that we've been doing here is where is Forrest going to end up going to school? Oh, man. Anyway, um, well, first off, rapid cycling bipolar is just terrible. Mm. And it's a really serious issue. Uh, we'll get more into this kind of thing probably in part two of this episode. But the self-harm rate, even the suicide rate in people with bipolar disorder is very high among the significant psychopathologies. And maybe one of the highest subgroups is rapid cycling. You can just imagine. Second, the metaphor of the roller coaster is often used in which you're strapped to it and you can't get off it. That's the nightmare it will drag you down. It will take you up. And when you're up, you like the roller coaster. And yet every up is followed by a down for yourself. And meanwhile, on the up, you could be driving your coworkers, your family members, and your stockbroker crazy because you're creating a lot of trouble for yourself and, and for them as well. And inside it all, it really is haunting to recognize, I think, in all of this, <laughs> how biochemical we are, how vulnerable we are to a clockwork mechanism that makes a Swiss watch seem like an hourglass in its simplicity. The whole neurochemistry and neurobiology of you know who we are. And there's something very vulnerable, I think, about appreciating the ways in which we can, uh, if something goes a little bit awry, uh, between years, we can just feel utterly different from who we normally are. And I think one of the takeaways from this is, of course, to have tremendous compassion uh, swept along by these things. People who are depressed are wearing, but they don't tend to be really irritating. People who are manic are you know, often irritating and disruptive and troublesome and even scary, particularly if their elated mood shifts into something that's angry. And yet still, they're the beings who most suffer their own ailments. And we can have compassion for them along the way. That's a really wonderful reflection. And again, I think really draws us into that feeling of being on the same team yeah. and that common humanity that I was talking about earlier. I think it's a great way to put it. And also is probably a great place to bring this part of the episode to a close. Before we do that, though, I would just like to underline something you said earlier. You and I are just touching the surface mm -hmm. in a podcast frame about this. And people who have a significant interest in these topics would be well served to look elsewhere. Start with the Wikipedia entry for bipolar disorder or cyclothymic disorder. Reach out to uh, Medscape or WebMD or organizations that are involved with various uh, mental health issues of different kinds. There are tons of resources out there. And what uh, you and I are talking about for us, as you well know, is just the beginning of this exploration for many people. Yeah, absolutely. This is intended definitely as an introduction and kind of a demystification 
of this topic. And if you want to really go down the rabbit hole here, man, there are a lot of places you can go, as I think you're highlighting really wonderfully there. So that was part one of our treatment of bipolar disorder, such as we're giving it here. Again, a very introductory treatment. In this part of the episode, we really focused on the what of bipolar disorder. In part two of this episode, we're going to focus more on the how, including what we can do to manage maybe our own tendencies in that direction, or what we can do to support the people around us who are going through these experiences. So today we began by laying the foundation of what bipolar disorder is, highlighting that full bipolar disorder includes periods of full depression mixed with periods of extreme mania. This means that there's a roller coaster element to bipolar disorder where somebody goes down and then they fly up and then they go down again. This makes it often quite challenging to diagnose and even more challenging for the person who's experiencing it. We talked about some of the different kinds of bipolar disorder and emphasized that bipolar really is a spectrum. There can really be very mild versions of it all the way up to very extreme and life-altering versions of it. We spoke a little bit for a moment there about the context of bipolar disorder, including how it used to be framed as manic depression and some of the reasons that we moved from using that phrase for it to using bipolar. And then we ended by you giving a really nice description of what bipolar looks like in a kind of practical everyday sense and what the experience might be of somebody who is living with or working with somebody who's experiencing a more mild form of bipolar disorder. So that's it for today's episode. We hope you'll join us again later this week when we'll go more into the how of working with bipolar disorder. Until next time, thanks for listening. 